Welcome to the Life as an Observer podcast. My name is Ryan Bean. I am your host in self-observation. This podcast is an exploration of physical and non-physical self through discussion around yoga, meditation, self-improvement, self-realization, and practices that elevate the mind-body-soul connection. Let's start observing. This episode of Life as an Observer is made possible by patron support. If you'd like to support this program, you can visit patron.podbean.com backslash life as an observer to learn more. Welcome to Life as an Observer. Today, I was a little bit uh, curious and inquisitive about some ideas about our space and about the, the space around us and, the, and space exploration in general. Um, before I dive into today's episode, um, which you may have already seen from the title, um, I kind of want to preface this a little bit that I've always been very curious about space. Um, not necessarily uh, flight and being in flight, but just the idea of exploring new areas, um, the idea of um, habitability in different planets, uh, chasing the, the unknown, and moving kind of past the realm of what we know. What we know is this little blue planet that we live on. And today's episode is going to really more explore the idea of what could happen. And I only have a little bit of knowledge from, from a little bit of research. And certainly I would love to explore this deeper with those who are maybe associated with the space program or have more knowledge of space exploration than I do. But for the time being, um, I want to talk just a little bit about what I know with it. Now, um, know that these podcasts, sometimes I have guests and sometimes I don't. Um, but to have uh, guests on the show, it really is very helpful from you. So if you have a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, just a five-star review, you can put whatever on there. You can say, I like space. You can put, I love yoga. Um, you can say, Ryan, I really enjoy beards. Whatever it is that you like, I don't care what's in the comments, really, unless you want to send me a message, then that's great. But there is something with the algorithm that really helps the show out when you leave a review. Also, if you're enjoying this content, share it with your friends because they may need some of these episodes more than you do and you're just enjoying them, but maybe passing them on. If we talk about breath work and we, we dig deeper into meditation techniques, um, it could be a, a helpful thing for a friend. So um, right now, the, the podcast itself is completely ad-free. Um, and the way that I support this podcast is through a patron page. If you're not familiar with that patron page, I'm going to have a link in the show notes, but it's uh, hosted by Podbean, and so it's uh, Life as an Observer uh, patron account within Podbean. And on that page, you'll find even uh, $2 donations um, get you some, some, some freebies and some things with the show that really help support it. Um, the $20 entry level gets you some swag with the show, plus I, I host uh, monthly classes on, on uh, Zoom. Usually those are breathwork courses or meditation. 
Um, and then there's a couple other levels, but um, it's up to you how you want to get into that. But if you're liking this content, I have a lot of stuff coming up. A lot of really neat things that are happening um, with the way of retreats. So I have a retreat coming that we've been talking about in past episodes. Um, it's happening in November in Ponte Vedra, Florida. Um, you can go to expansion retreats to, to learn about that. Um, it's an art and meditation retreat. And then I have another one that's uh, here in southern Utah, and I'm doing this with um, the Southern Utah Ketamine uh, group, which is uh, Satori Health and, and some others, to put together this uh, retreat, which is a ketamine-assisted therapy. Um, I'm in the process of working through some breath work that um, will uh, kind of partner or pair with ketamine-assisted therapy. And we're, we're going to be doing that at this retreat. So if you have any interest in that, um, I'll have the link to that also in the show notes. Um, other than that, I do have a breathwork course. I think when this podcast comes out, you'll have a couple weeks before, uh, before that happens. I'm starting on September the 22nd, and it is hosted by Insight Timer, even though we're going to be taking a lot of that content off of the, the app of, of Insight Timer and doing it on uh, Zoom. There are handouts and so forth, but this particular cohort is called Breathe to Manifest Miracles. And that Breathe to Manifest Miracles course is a six-week course, two hours each week. Um, the homework is simple. So it's just simply a breath and, and working through some manifesting techniques. But basically, I'm going to be pairing different uh, basic and more intermediate or advanced techniques of breath work with manifesting techniques in a way to help shift the subconscious patterns and moving into the life that we are deciding to live, that deliberately creating that life. And if you're at all interested in that, again, it's in the show notes. You're welcome to take a look at it or message me, um, message me on my social media, which is Ryan Bean Yoga. And I will be happy to respond to you, give you some information on it, and um, kind of discussing that. So um, I do host uh, different sessions on Insight Timer weekly, and I will be talking about it on that. So if you're on that meditation app, it is my favorite meditation app. And I host weekly classes on there and have some recorded content. So if you like meditating at all and you haven't been on Insight Timer yet, I highly recommend it. Search for my name, Ryan Bean, and... Uh, you may end up finding me there for breath work. So let's dive into today's session. Now, I'm going to be kind of clicking around in a few web pages here because I want to be able to give you all the right information. Um, so today, our topic, I'm just calling it Yoga on Mars because there's a lot of buzz about going to Mars. Now, I don't necessarily know that this is going to be the, the first um body that we visit and we've been there for many many years and if you've kept up with those different lunar landers and we i think it's over 20 years we've been going back and forth it's just getting a lot of buzz now and i think we get the right people talking about it um that it creates even more buzz when you get you know spacex's and nasa and we're sending rovers and we're sending um drones and all kinds of stuff to the planet to to dig and drill, and I believe in the next couple of years, all the stuff that they've been drilling, they're actually going to be sending back so that we can, uh, you know, do a little bit of research around what's in the soil and was there water there, has is there life in there? There's a whole lot of uh, research that's going uh, around this exploration, 
to, to going to and fro Mars. And I know that uh, the SpaceX community, they're talking about getting it manned, manned flights, uh, I believe, before 2030. So, you know, within the next decade, uh, bodies being, uh, human bodies being on, um, being on the, the, on Mars. Now, I know there was a lot of buzz when we, when we, I wasn't around at the time, but when we first visited, uh, the moon and there was a space race that was going. And I think, and we still have a space race going now, if you really think about it, but, uh, most of it is in cooperation with each other, which is great to see. Um, there are some outliers that are doing some stuff and, it's good to see, but I wanted to give you a little bit of statistics about Mars, if you're not familiar with it, and kind of talk about what that would mean, maybe if I were to be sent to Mars, if NASA, if you're listening, yeah, I'd consider the idea of teaching breath work and yoga and meditation on another planetary body for sure. But I want to kind of tell you how I feel about it here first, because there is some inherent risk and danger. So... Uh, yoga on Mars, huh? So the diameter of, of Mars is 4,220 miles around, which is nearly half of the size of Earth. So you're looking at something that's maybe just about half the size of what we have. Their year is about 687 days. So almost twice what, what ours is. It's just a, a longer orbit around the sun, an elliptical orbit. Um, a day on Mars is just about the same, just about 24 hours. It's a little longer than 24 hours. And the part that, um, that, that I'm most interested in is the gravity. So Earth has almost more than two times as much gravity. I think gravity on, on Mars is 0.375% of that of Earth. So Earth is almost two times as much gravity. Also, the average daily temperature on Mars is about negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmosphere is quite thin, um, and it is mostly made of methane and CO2. There are a couple moons, which would be kind of fun to watch, right? One of them is quite small, and I think uh, they're, they're a little concerned about that particular moon um, and its uh, volatility. But there's two moons that you could see in the night sky, uh, maybe the day sky too, and... But I think that, let me go back to the atmosphere a little bit. It's actually really quite thin. And I think I've seen a, several different statistics of it, but that it's one one hundredth of the size or the density of that of Earth. Those who are scientists, let me know and tell me maybe some more Mars facts about the atmosphere. But what that does is it makes it the planet, the entire planet, quite susceptible to radiation from cosmic radiation from, you know, all kinds of different um things in the galaxy, but also our own sun. Uh, right on Earth, we have this beautiful, you know, magnet charge around our, our planet, which actually keeps us quite protected. And it's part of the reason we see the, the, the northern lights and, and some other things in our, in our sky. But on Mars, we don't have that, not as much, um, which could cause a lot of problems in the way of um, just radiation, sickness, poison, and uh, failure within organs, um, and so forth. Um, we're finding that, that Mars may have had an ancient past. Now, I say may have, um, may have been some life there, because we're finding some frozen water, and um, we're finding that there may have been some clay deposits, which have 
Um, clay usually comes from that of moisture. That of moisture is usually water. Um, where there is water is usually a key indicator of life. So we're kind of finding that, but really in its current state, if people were to walk on Mars, they would have to certainly be wearing protective equipment that allowed them to breathe because um, oxygen levels would be um, is quite a bit lower. We'd have very high CO2 content and well, the temperature was as negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Not only that, but we're going to be bombarded by the sun's radiation. So there's a lot of a lot of variables there. It doesn't mean it's impossible to be on Mars, but it's not going to be easy. Now, what does this mean for a human walking around on the, on the planet of Mars? Well, the first thing would be atrophy in muscles. And we've found this. I was I was reading. Um, something on NASA's website, and it was talking about, it was the, their life services division, and it was talking about um, a quote, which I'll read to you here, before we'd actually gone to the moon. And it says, the question has always been the same. Can humans survive in an alien environment of space? As Warner Van Braun wrote in 1952, some medical men are concerned with the prospect of permanent weightlessness not because of any known danger, but because of the unknown possibilities. There were even fears that the launch into space might itself be lethal. So this is uh, Warner Van Braun, who um, was head of, the, of NASA for, for some time. I believe he was a, a German engineer and came over uh, for our, our space projects um, and the space race uh, against Sputnik and, and the and the the USSR. So he came over and he was saying this. Now we've, we've learned from that, that we can actually take those unknown possibilities. At one point we thought that we could not, that we would actually, it would, you know, I don't know if they were afraid of human would like blow up or what, but it was definitely saying that those stresses might be really hard and through training that they're able to accomplish that. So the atrophy in muscles, you'll see all kinds of, uh, um, cyclists, maybe those little teeny cycles in space where the, the guys that are on the ISS, they're using that um, to, to sort of keep the muscles going, to find a spending time there. And there was a, a, many other experiments where they sent dogs and monkeys and other various animals into space to kind of learn what would happen from launch, landing, weightlessness, and could humans even accomplish this? So in the 1960s, we realized that, that we could, um, but it certainly took a lot of training. I know that there was, there's a lot of fear around the space miss missions and um, how we will um, survive, how we will be able to handle these long time periods in space. So longer missions provided a lot of conflicting data. So in 1965, the astronauts from the uh, Gemini 7 project which include Jim Lovell, they spent 14 days in orbit and they provide manned missions to and from the moon. Um, well, they made that possible. In addition, despite being confined together in space in a very small, compact car, basically, they really went through an excellent condition. Though the astronauts showed some bone loss and there was some evidence to change that their cardiovascular and muscular systems None of the changes were as severe as McDivitt's and White's, the other two uh, astronauts that had some issues in previous missions. So 
they, we learned that our bodies are not all the same. Even though we're all uh, humans, uh, that we're not all the same. And I know we've sent some other organisms into the into to space and, and made some changes. And I, we, in the late 1970s, NASA's uh, life sciences program had kind of expanded that a little bit and did some uh, joint research. This is after the space race, right? They did it with the Russians, beginning with um, this unmanned, um, it was called a bion capsule. And they they sent a bunch of life forms, monkeys, rats, flies, fish, ants, worms. I don't know, maybe tardigrades went on that one. And they just sent it to the, they sent it out into space um, to last up to five to 14 days was the, the span of some of these missions. And some of these missions suggested that microgravity was harmful to life, that the shuttle um, mentioned above that that it, that it indicated that there might be negative systems that were caused not by the environment of space, but by the stress, by the stress of the landing, the launch. And the program ended in 96. Um, they closed that program down when there was a monkey who, who had died um, one day after returning. And they did an operation to, to see the bone samples and stuff to see how long it was. And there was some, some things about the physiology and the comprom- that were compromised during flight. Um, again, it's, I think a little bit is, it's not saying that there was a failure here. It's just saying that it led to some, some things to be looked into, that there could be bone loss um, and there could be some other issues that happen. What they, what they came to find is that there was fluid shifts in plasma. Okay, so these fluid shifts within the, the body's chemistry. They also found that there was negative uh, calcium balance and a loss to 1% of bone mass in some subjects. And most of this was calculated if there was going to be um, up to 18 months in space. So that's where they would end up having. So if you were to move to space or you were to move to, to a place with less gravity, you would in turn have muscle loss, bone loss, shifts in plasma, and um, this negative calcium balance. In turn, also the stresses of launch, landing, going to a a, a radiation-filled climate that is cold and is unknown, and there's a lot of the infrastructure is not in place. Okay, so now if I've already painted this gloom and doom of going to space, why would I still want to go, <laughs> right? How would I, why would I want to be a part of that if there is such this gloom and doom? And I think it's because we, we tend to fear what we don't know, right? We, we, we didn't know the moon and we thought there were men living in the moon and we've thought that there are the, the green, green men in Mars and we said that we couldn't survive a launch and we also thought that the world was flat. So, you know, there's all these different things that we have to learn and we have to move through fear. Fear does serve a purpose. It allows us to know what we like. It allows us to know what we don't like. It allows us to move into a place of small stressors. But when we're under constant stress, there is no time for the body to recover that. So small stresses are actually really good for the body. That fear, that place of unknown is really good for us in small doses when contained. But when we live in that place of high stress all the time, what that really is going to feel like 
it's going to feel like anxiety, panic attacks, stress, and so forth. So we have to do this thousands of times. You know, I remember watching a, an interview with Alex Honnold, who was the one, you know, the first person to ascend free rider on El Cap um, in Yosemite without any uh, safety equipment, without um, ropes, um, just a chalk bag, I think, and some, some shoes, which, you know, he ascended it. And, but he would practice the moves hundreds, if not thousands of times, did the, the routes, you know, with safety equipment. And when he was asked about this, he really attributed the lack of fear to climbing that thousands of feet without any ropes based on he knew it already. He knew the route already. He knew what to expect. He knew the moves. He knew which areas would challenge him. And he, and he was very aware and trained for those specific areas. And that's a lot like what our astronauts do, training for the worst, training how to to really expect the unexpected. And the problem I think I see with, with uh, us average or everyday humans traveling into space, even if it's a space hotel or if it's uh, going to Mars or living on the moon, is I don't know that we're going to have that ability or time to be able to train to go on said missions. You know, if it was just like, we got to get off this planet and go, how do we train? How do we prepare our bodies so that we know every step of the way? I mean, we may be in in space for months before even landing on Mars, maybe months. And that containment within a ship, I mean, I know when I fly just to the East Coast from where I'm at, just a couple hours time and I'm ready to get off that plane immediately. You know, because well, at least with our, our COVID restrictions, now we have to wear a mask. And, um, you know, there's just, for a while there was not sitting next to others and no talking and it was very like sterile and just an uncomfortable environment. And to imagine going four months in coach to Mars, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to do that. So I think that there has to be um, a little bit of a training program before you go. And, you know, I was looking into uh, just the cost of the the NASA space program, just that of like the Perseverance and the rovers that are on Mars now. And it comes to the tune of something like $2.9 billion um, spent or yearly spent. And this is just me kind of digging in deeper and maybe trying to churn the wheels a little bit. But I was looking at the size of the, the, uh, the plastic island there that we've created in the Pacific Ocean that's like now the size of Texas. And the cost to clean that up was something like $122 million. Now, I don't know if you can do the math really quickly, but we could easily clean up all the garbage that's in our ocean, thus cleaning up our air, thus cleaning up our planet, and even cleaning up areas, um, areas that I know about, like in India, and areas that don't have the best sanitation for, um, for garbage and just ways of picking up, for the tune of $2.9 billion, we could easily create a sustainable recycling program, trash program for the entire world. And I believe we could even feed everybody on the planet. So I have to kind of look at it 
as do we need a plan B because this world is going to die? Or should we be investing that money and time into plan A where we currently are? Well, the yogi in me says be here now, right? It says be right here, right now, focusing on what's in front of you, not with your head in the stars. However, if we are going to go that direction, if the European Space Agency um, is going to be pushing stuff along with NASA, and NASA's working along with the Russian space agencies, and China's going, I think they have a, a couple uh, satellites around Mars now, and I think they may even have a rover up there. But if we're going to do all that, then we should at least be prepared. So where I'm going with this today is, what do we need to do to be prepared for the next wave, the next thing. And what I'm finding is, is that our ability to be able to move, breathe, eat, and drink are going to be the most important. And also keeping ourselves shielded, I think, is going to be the most important. But the ability to move, to eat and drink, and we can actually even go longer without, um, without food, but without drink, we would certainly perish quickly. So I think our first plan of action is to find a, or put our colony in an area that has water or has the ability to make water, whether that be through earth ship style or scrubbing the atmosphere of the CO2. And, you know, maybe we, we create some sort of biodomes that, that, that create oxygen through, um, through planting trees. I know that, that there was some issues with that with our there's a, uh, a space dome or a biodome here on Earth. I believe it's down in New Mexico, but they uh, couldn't keep trees. They couldn't grow them very tall because there was no wind and the trees would just tip over if they got to certain heights because the the roots weren't being stimulated. They weren't being activated. So kind of like us being on Mars is we wouldn't be able to walk very long. Uh, if we lived there and we weren't constantly being active and keeping our muscles from being atrophy, if we weren't constantly stimulating them, the the effects of the lack of gravity would certainly cripple us. And so that's where yoga would become quite important, that we can find a space to where we can move, where we can explore movement of the joints, not just exercise but really get into how we're moving the body and how we're supporting ourselves maybe a lot of push and pull type of activities where we're pulling and pushing and we're really kind of working yoga tends to be more of a, a pushing type um, exercise when we're doing asana and so we would need to probably incorporate uh, pulling motions to, to be able to, to sustain this I know that in some of the, the ISS, you see them all the time on the cycles, and that's great for the legs, but we would need to do more work for the upper body also, or we would certainly just not have any strength. It would be, um, you know, we'd be quite weak, especially if we came back to Earth. I don't know what the process would be for quarantining and all that kind of stuff, but, but certainly if you, I think if you ever lived on Mars, I don't know that you could ever come back. I, 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 don't, I don't know that with the effects of, our gravity and your weaker bone structure and muscle structure of coming back to earth might just break your limbs. Um, I don't know that for certain, but I, I, I feel that you would, you would have a lot of bone loss if you were gone for several years. So 
something to think about if you're going to move to Mars um, is that you would have bone loss and muscle loss. And certainly a lot of the, the fluids within us would change um, and shift, uh, especially our bone marrow, um, maybe even our blood and the way that some of our organs work. Because right now they're kind of in harmony with each other. You know, as we move and we lift the diaphragm, that sort of pumps the lymphatic system, which doesn't have its own heart. So it sort of pumps the lymphatic system, which is our immunities. And so we would need to exercise the diaphragm so that we're pushing that lymph fluid throughout our body to keep ourselves healthy. Um, I think our heart would continue to work just the normal same way. Um, but you may have some separation in different chemicals, different blood cells, and so forth. So uh, something to think about. But we'd also have a lack of oxygen. And so we would want to optimize how we're bringing oxygen into our body, not just regular breathing and not just fake air either. We wouldn't want to just be sucking on this pure oxygen all the time. Obviously, we would want to create a sustainable a biodome environment where we're creating oxygen, um, we're also consuming it, and we're producing CO2, and we're creating that eco-cycle that is natural, like as a permaculture for our own planet, that we want to create that atmosphere. And I think it, that might actually be one of the first things that those who are colonizing Mars would want to do is try to figure out how to fix or build up the atmosphere of Mars. Now, you see where I'm going with this. If we're fixing and building on another Plan B planet, why are we so passionate? Why are we so passionate about going there? And maybe it's because it's unknown, but if we're going to fix an atmosphere, if we're going to create oceans and water and dig and create life in other places to the tune of I mean, I'm sure it'll certainly increase with inflation and with the projects, but let's just say it's upwards of $4 billion. Couldn't we use that to build up our own, to build up our own atmosphere, to look into the idea of the global warming, to explore the ideas of creating um, hospitable locations for people to live who maybe don't have um, homes, who are homeless. Maybe we create minimalized projects where we do tiny homes and we use areas that are not currently being used to house um, the homeless. Now, there's, there's a few areas that I have in mind, but um, there's very little land that hasn't been taken, we'll just call it taken, by countries. And that's a big, long um, podcast that we could certainly discuss. But basically, the borders of different countries, there's so many. And um, the, the borders are created by usually war or bureaucracies or different ideas. And borders are created based on well, they're created based upon who has the money, really. But we, there are some areas of the world that are currently not populated. And I, I think that it's, it's a very interesting uh, topic to dig into, to, to think about areas of the world that are not populated. Um, one of them just happens to be in Antarctica. 
now. It's just a little area of Antarctica. And I believe that's the biggest piece of it um, that hasn't been claimed. Most of it is. Um, there's a lot of areas that are claimed by the United States and Germany and all, all different nations down there as, as research facilities. But there is some area in, um, in Antarctica, and I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but there is an area in Antarctica that um, is available and it's unclaimed. And if you want to move down to Antarctica, <laughs> you can get down there. The problem is, is a lot like going to Mars, is there's not infrastructure, there is not um, uh, roads and easy ways to get in and out. Um, it's not really a very sustainable um, place to live because um, it's really hard to bring in infrastructure and you know have banks and restaurants and people coming and tourism. So you would have to figure something out. But there's also areas in Africa near the Sudan, between the, the Sudan and Egypt border that are currently unclaimed lands that can be moved into, but again, they're quite unhospitable. So, you know, just it's really sand dunes and uh, there's really no roads or nothing to get in and out of. So what do we do in those cases where there's all this unclaimed land? Now, we certainly want to protect our national parks and state parks, but maybe there is some areas that, that could be used. And when I'm saying this, I'm saying areas that maybe are not the the friendliest. Most of our population lives along the coast. You know, most most in most areas, it's along the coast. People want to live near the beach. Now, me personally, I'd rather live in the mountains, but a lot of people do want to live near the beach. And those areas are pretty much taken. Um, we've seen some projects fail, like in Dubai, where they've created uh, neighborhoods that, that go out into the into the the gulf there into the water and we're creating these fake islands and um you know that's really interesting but probably not all that sustainable and quite um quite expensive we've seen some other areas where india and bangladesh have created these pockets within each other where they've shared each other's land and these these little pockets of land um even up until just a few years ago were all under dispute these little teeny pockets of land where there was pieces of India in Bangladesh and there was pieces of Bangladesh in India and there were these little pockets and if you ever look on the map you'll see just that that border between the two countries is it's messy there's a lot of different peninsulas and different areas um, it's better than it was but there were all these inclusions inside of each other's country and I think it was up to like a hundred something that were in between each in between each country and finally, they kind of cleaned that up so that people could get in and out of their their respective countries. Now, Bangladesh at one point, I believe, was called, maybe it was called Eastern Pakistan at one point. And, and now it has its own its own entity. Where am I going with all this? Is We're going to Mars, and none of that is claimed land, right? It is the unknown. It's the unknown, and it does create some places for new life. For areas where we're quite overpopulated in Indonesia, in Southeast Asia, um, in China, areas that are very, very crowded, where it has created some problems with pollution, with noise pollution, light pollution, garbage pollution, and just a, a, a lot of atmospheric issues and the, the air quality. And, and 
to fix that really means either to reduce population or to, to find other solutions. So where I'm at is not on the fence by any means. I say, let's explore Mars. Let's figure it out. But let's do it in a way that's not only like the rich and elite get to go. That it's actually like a project where we can house those who need a place to live. That, that we say, hey, we have jobs that need to be done here. We have some exploration that has to be accomplished. We need to be able to collect dirt samples. We need to look for water. We need to have all this infrastructure put in with roads and with farming and all these different places. And to do so, we would probably need to employ, I think I saw something that was supposed to be like 35,000 people there in 2030, something like that. But what if we were to take and we were to double that number? We were to double that number and make it 70,000 people that are, that are there. Sure, the cost would be higher, but what if we were to turn it into a project where we're finding housing and where it becomes an area where there is a very intentional living community? one that sustains itself, because we would need to, right? We would need to, to have water that sustains itself, power that sustains itself. And we would need to create it in a way that is more intentional, more deliberate. And certainly we would want to bring into it not a religious aspect, but a spiritual aspect, one where there are um, guidelines and restrictions and just, just ways to sort of make sure that those who are coming are adhering to the structure of that intentional community, whatever that intention is that we, that we put out there. And I think in doing so, you're going to need spiritual thought leaders, you know, to be able to offer leadership and guidance. Because the last thing that I want is a bunch of different politicians that are thousands and thousands of miles away on Earth telling a the the Mars colony, how they have to live and who they should pay their taxes to and what currency should be used. I think that this exploration into another world needs to be that, that more intentional and more thought-provoking and more deliberate. Now, yes, we're doing a lot of research, but we haven't done things like discussing the idea of what will breathwork do? in helping with creating that nervous system response that we're looking for, for entry, for, for takeoff and entry. Can breath work, when I say yes, it can, but can breath work really be a tool that gets taught to those who are traveling? Because like we said, they, at one point, we didn't think that people could even survive flight to the moon. Now we've proved that that can happen, but now breath work to be able to calm the nervous system, to be able to maintain um, that, I, that level of anxiety through fears, through stressful situations, to be able to arrive and come into an environment that does not have as much oxygen. We're going to need this. We're going to need to have a firm and strong breathwork practice. It has to happen. The idea of losing muscle density and bone density just by arriving and being there and working, we're going to need to have, I don't want to call it mandatory, but we're going to need to have suggested yoga and movement and exercise routines. Otherwise, 
the medical facilities will be overloaded, overloaded with people who are hurt, injured, and can't, um, and can't walk and will actually be a burden to the colony. And so we have to, to kind of work in, into that. And I know there's been many colonies or intentional communities that have been created here on earth. And some have really failed because there wasn't this idea of the whole, the collective. It was more, um, yeah, I'm here for everyone unless I need something for me. And we got to move away from the idea of it being run by governments. We have to move more into it being run by not personalities, not personalities at all, but being run by individuals and those who have a collective mindset. Everybody, everyone that's there will have to subscribe to that. Otherwise, can you imagine chaos <laughs> in Mars where, where you can't go outside without putting on a suit? And I guess that's where I would have to really bear down strong. I don't know if I would want to go outside, even though I'd want to go. I know they have the tallest mountain in the entire solar system there, right? Like, and so I would love to go and see those, those mountains there. I know that the Mars uh, mountains, some of them are like twice the size of Mount Everest. Um, I think it was, uh, I was trying to look at what it, the, the one that I was looking at here. Um, uh, Mons, Mons, uh, is it Mons Olympus? Is that what it's called? Um, and I think it's twice the height of Everest, if I remember right, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, that, that we have this giant mountain that I would want to go explore, but I'm going to be real vulnerable here and transparent with my audience is I don't like wearing even like wearing a mask. If I know that my, um, my, um, immunity is high and I'm not sick to wear a mask is it, it's hard to teach yoga and breath work at wearing a mask. Let's just be real honest about this. Um, it's really hard, um, to, to do. So I would need to have that off. Um, I can't imagine climbing the highest mountain in the solar system, which <laughs> without, with it, with needing to wear protective equipment the entire time. So I believe that it's, I think I saw something somewhere that it was like 13 miles uh, above what that of Mount Everest is. Let me look here. But basically it's measured um, two and a half times that of Mount Everest. And so, yeah, Mons Olympus or Olympus Mons is what it's called. Giant, giant mountain. I would want to go explore that. I'd want to find lots of crystals into the, uh, you know, that are around the, the different areas where there was water and minerals. And I would love to go check that out. So I would probably be an explorer, but most of the time I'd want to just stay in that little biodome and do yoga and teach breath work. I think that's really where what we would need to do to be able to sustain life is having a, a practice that unites us, a practice that keeps us not from uh, hating each other or finding anger within, e within each other, but that, that unites us. And... Many times religion does accomplish that, but I think that if we have more than one religion, we'll end up having um, kind of similar scenarios like w what happened up in Antelope, um, Antelope, Oregon, where there was one group of people looking at another group of people, thinking how different are they from me and looking how I'm different from them. And 
it's great that we're going to be different from another, you know, especially if we do find other life. But I think we're going to need to find what unites us more than what separates us. And religion may be a really tough one to, to, to have on a new colony. Um, it doesn't mean you can't be spiritual. And I think that's going to be a key to bringing us together. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day by uh, 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 East Forest, and he was talking to a gentleman about religion. And um, on that podcast, he said that he, he stepped away from religion because he already had the script. And I thought that was a really interesting statement for the, this guest to say is that that he already had the script. And so when he moved away from the script of religion and moved into a more spiritual path that was personalized, that he actually became closer to that which is non-physical within him. Um, some of that had to do with uh, plant medicine journeys and so forth, which I would agree with him that that is certainly individualized and allows us to, to have that spirituality that is very individual without the script of kind of knowing what's going to happen and what we're expected to do. I think that uh, even moving into reading spiritual books or those that have been classified as religious books would be helpful, but not the actual organized religion. So, you know, reading things like the Bhagavad Gita and Yoga Sutras and even reading um, excerpts from the Bible and uh, you know, Be Here Now by Ram Das, and just things that really are going to help uplift us and remind us that we are humans, that we're the same. And as we begin to move to this exploration of another planet, that we may want to find those similarities before we leave. Helping our homeless, feeding the hungry, not fighting over borders and who owns what, cleaning up the garbage that's in our ocean, purifying our air, paying our teachers more, paying our law enforcement and firefighters for a good job when they've done a good job, moving our military away from conflicts and utilizing them within our own borders to, to help maintain peace, to build up trust. Using money instead of for lavish uh, vacations and buildings and projects that, that who knows where our money's being used, honestly, but to use it to put it towards projects like uh, new new in, uh, inventions and new areas within p uh, permaculture, saving seeds. So we have seeds like the ark that's there up in, uh, I believe it's up in uh, Norway, right? And just finding ways where we're sustaining and we're building up this planet before we decide to embark to taking the world's elite to another planet. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to digest here in is it worth it? Would you go? And what would you need to do to be there? And is that investment, that of $4 billion maybe with, with inflation and with the new projects coming up, is it worth it to just give up on Mother Earth, the, one, the mother that we've always known, this Gaia 
and the earth below her. Is it worth it for us just to say, ah, we've destroyed you, so now we're going to leave? Or can we think more sustainably? And I'm interested to hear from you about some sustainable ideas. I've seen a whole bunch of them, but I would love to hear from you. And maybe even we'll take this, uh, this topic onto my patron page uh, a little bit deeper to talk about some of the projects that have been done um, with cleaning the oceans. I think I saw one where uh, it was a teenager that was, had some sort of device that was cleaning up the ocean. Um, there's also some other ideas with how we build how we can build more sustainably, how we use our uh, natural resources like water and uh, wind. I would really like to see that, especially in times of drought. You know, right now I live in the desert and right now it's, it's, it's heavy drought. And we're, mo- the majority of this area is um, by hydroelectric services through the dams that are around here. And that's how we're, we're doing the, uh, the, the power cultivation or, or building power. And I think we need to, to maybe even have secondary and tertiary um, ways that are not fossil fuels that are easier to, to, to grab onto like wind. And I know there's some other areas, but I'd love to hear from you about ways that we can build up our own planet and that we can find ways to, to live here peacefully amongst each other, amongst nations, amongst religions, amongst colors, uh, uh, sexual preferences, how we can live here as humans united. Or is the best step for us to start taking yoga classes on Mars? Thanks for joining today, friends. Look forward to talking to you on another episode.